All right. So instead of the general cold open that we do uh, in light of the attacks on the what is the uh, library that was attacked? Oh, yeah. So this was um, basically folks may have seen now going around online the videos that came out of the uh, attempted disruption of an event very close to me that some of my comrades were at here in Providence, uh, where a bunch of Nazis showed up to a little community library that we have here that was hosting a Red Books Day event where uh, they were doing a reading of the Communist Manifesto. And so a group of about a dozen fucking Nazis, literally, like, and for all the Nazi flags, the weirdo shitheads on the internet who are like, well, how do you know they were Nazis? It's like probably the giant fucking Nazi flag and Mm -hmm. the like Nazi salutes they were doing, I think kind of made them being Nazis pretty obvious. Just a couple of red flags. (laughs) Yeah. And not the cool kind of red flags. (laughs) Right. Um, But so anyways, they, they, nobody was hurt and they like the neighbors ended up calling the cops on them and they fucking ran off and they've And importantly, they did completely fail in their attempt to stop the event that was going on and folks were able to finish and everybody, you know, was able to get home and and was all right. But I thought I would share, uh, you know, in the spirit of solidarity, some of my favorite selections out of the, the manifesto, um, just partially because, you know, it was red book day the other day and, and because also mostly fuck Nazis. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Go, Um, go for it. Go off King. (laughs) yeah so i'm not gonna go through a ton here but 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 just to start with you know that unforgettable opening a specter is haunting europe the specter of communism all the powers of old europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter pope and czar metternich and guizot french radicals and german police spies where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power Where the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the more advanced opposition parties, as well as against its reactionary adversaries. Two things result from this fact. One, communism is already acknowledged by all European powers to be itself a power. It is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the specter of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. Hell yeah. And I love that we have permission from Big Daddy Marx to just post our tendencies. That's right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, Lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Our epic, the epic of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. And then skipping ahead a little bit. You are horrified at our intending to do away with private property. But in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. 
Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those nine-tenths. You reproach us, therefore, with intending to do away with a form of property, the necessary condition for whose existence is the non-existence of any property for the immense majority of society. In a word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so. That is just what we intend. From the moment when labor can no longer be converted into capital, money, or rent, into a social power capable of being monopolized, i.e., from the moment when individual property can no longer be transformed into bourgeois property, into capital, from that moment, you say, individuality vanishes. You must, therefore, confess that by individual, you mean no other person than the bourgeois, than the middle-class owner of property— this person must, indeed, be swept out of the way and made impossible. Communism deprives no man of the power to appropriate the products of society. All that it does is to deprive him of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriation. Wow. Awesome. I love that. It's crazy that, like, you know, uh, private property uh, just being in existence generates a class of people who lord that private property over each other. And the very existence of this class calls into being simultaneously this other class that they exploit that exists in opposition to them. All because of this this private capital. It's crazy. Somebody should write a book about this. <laughs> it's dialectics. <laughs> yeah. And so just to finish it off with the section that people will probably be more familiar with. In short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front as the leading question in each case, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at that time. Finally, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the democratic parties of all countries. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Workers of the world, unite. Hell yeah. Roll intro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, welcome everybody to Work Stoppage, your your favorite uh, reading the introductory texts to communism <laughs> podcast. That's right. Uh, we are entirely listener supported, so if you want to hear the rest of the manifesto, just read it yourself. But we appreciate the money that you give us on Patreon. It really helps keep the show going. If you're not in the Discord already, please do that. It's free and it's a good place to see the memes we talk about at the end of each episode. Leave us a five-star review anywhere you think it will help. Just whisper it into the wind and hope it lands in someone's ear. Uh, <laughs> That's right. 
but uh, we're going to start off by following up with uh, Starbucks' massive union repression campaign that they've been organizing in the wake of all of these union campaigns that have been springing up around the country. Uh, and most recently, they have fired a union organizer that they have been kind of intimating they might fire for a while. Am I getting that right? Yeah. The way that this has come down, and like the, the, it's not a, a ton of new stuff to go into besides that uh, at the Buffalo... One of the the first buffalo store that unionized there has been a shift after the way that they were trying to what do you call it pad the numbers of how many people were able to vote so they hired on a ton of people and that caused a lot of people to get reduced hours well when workers have reduced hours they have to go elsewhere to make sure that they can get the money to survive and so people's schedules have become you know less available as a product of these working conditions and because of that, Starbucks has used this excuse to say, oh, these people don't fit the needs of our business anymore. Right. So when they grossly overstaffed this store, they reduced the number of working hours for some of these partners who were part of the union campaign uh, down to less than 20, which if you know anything about working for Starbucks, basically makes you not eligible for any kind of benefits whatsoever and does not pro- provide enough money to live on as if working full time at Starbucks did in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And and so in particular, they appear to have basically been using this to target a lot of the folks who were at the head of the union driving uh, organizing campaign, like one of whom specifically um, Cassie Fleischer has now been fired after. So like with, as Lena was explaining, like because of how hours were reduced, most people had to go get a lot of people in that position had to go get a second job. Mm-hmm. And so now when Starbucks has made a reversal of that policy and told people, well, you need to be working more than 20 hours a week or we can't guarantee you'll get any shifts. Like now you have folks who were forced to go get a second job because of Starbucks's union busting attempts. And now because they have that second job that has eaten into their other availability, Starbucks is now just reversing things and using that as a way to force these people out of the the company. Right. So this uh, this Starbucks employee, former Starbucks employee Cassie Fleischer, was told that her schedule now, no quote, no longer fits the needs of the business, uh, yeah. and that she would no longer be scheduled for shifts, which is like truly insane. Uh, fortunately, Starbucks Workers United has immediately protested her firing and filed unfair labor practice charges against the company, asking for her reinstatement. And she said, regardless of her decision, she plans to continue working to support the union. So it seems like the actual union organizers are completely undeterred by this. But it's still just an incredibly scummy and overtly, you know, uh, on this show, you start to develop a tolerance for how overt union busting is. And every once in a while, there's something that happens that just kind of catches your eye. And you're like, wow, that's (laughs) that's really overt, you know. Yeah, well, and for the for the person who it's affecting, it is kind of devastating. Like the mm-hmm. the commitment to working with the union after being fired is one of solidarity that is created through the struggle itself. And I I definitely stand with Cassie here in the way that like you might not get back in. In fact, often we see when people are even offered rehiring. They take their back pay and keep moving on with their life because to go back to that incredibly repressive and abusive workplace can be absolutely devastating on one's mental health on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And and hopefully, it, 
you know, whatever works out for, for Cassie here and, you know, their support of, of the union continues. But I, I mean, again, just solidarity. This is a, a shorter thing and just want to let everyone know what's going on in that, uh, in that bit of, uh, <laughs> ongoing history. Yeah. I mean, it honestly feels like, I gotta say, we've covered a lot of union busting campaigns on this show at this point, uh, enough to develop basically like a template for what they usually look like. Sure. And I gotta say, I feel like Starbucks has done a really fucking bad job at theirs. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like this sort of repression, you know, again, this is kind of, I'm just kind of repeating what I said when we talked about the folks they fired in Memphis, but it's like, if you're going to do this kind of heavy handed, like sort of just straight up clear retaliatory, like policy changes to fire people for organizing, you got to do that at the beginning. Like when right. the union drive is small, <laughs> well, you, you can't wait and do that when there's a hundred stores and thousands of your workers, because like now you have so many eyes on the situation. Nobody mm-hmm. is fooled by this. Nobody thinks this is a coincidence. Right. And, and so like you have these networks of solidarity that didn't exist before to help support people, which we saw a lot of money get donated to the folks in Memphis and obviously solidarity with them. We hope that the ULPs filed there will get them back their jobs. And obviously same here with, with Cassie, but like this all to me smacks of like Starbucks rushing to try and catch up with how far behind they are. And, and I, I don't really think that this is going to work. It's really fucked up. Um, and I hope that Cassie's able to get, you know, justice for this, but also just on the broader perspective, this to me seems like a sign of almost acknowledged failure by the Starbucks folks. Yeah. Well, every bit of repression is an admittance of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's like the, the silver lining here, I suppose, is that like this level of intensity and, and ramping up to this in such a short space of time, like you said, Dan, I think they're playing catch up. I think Starbucks really feels like, you know, in disarray in the face of how many stores are unionizing so quickly, like every day new ones get announced and uh, they just they're on the back foot and they're absolutely spiraling. I don't know if they're like if they're ready to admit failure, but I, I think failure is pretty much inevitable. I think I think they've mishandled this so egregiously, uh, you know. Obviously, I mean that in terms of like how they treat their employees, but I also mean in the sense you were talking about where like if you want to be a competent union busting company, this is certainly not how you go about doing it. No. Yeah. Well, in the idea of busting unions, I think that we can actually move to a kind of related in the fact that there is a kind there is a labor struggle going on. But in this particular example... We're actually seeing one of the things that we actually covered that created the tagline for this for this whole podcast uh, back when the UFCW was doing labor peace agreements with weed companies in the on the East Coast. We're actually going to be moving up to the North Coast, uh, aka Canada, <laughs> <laughs> where That's the right. UFCW has basically created a company union at Uber. Uh, pre or um, was it pre organizing a deal with Uber that will maintain the Prop 22 style legislation and, and misclassification of workers? Yeah, so we've talked about the issues 
that gig workers face with organizing a whole bunch on this show. And obviously, so the laws in Canada are a little different than they are here. You know, that they, they don't have the, the weird intricacies of the NLRA. They have their own labor law, which I'm far less familiar than I'm already not incredibly familiar with our own. Um, but they still face, as you were saying, Lena, the big problem of misclassification, of being uh, like listed as independent contractors, which still has the same fundamental issues where companies are able to get around minimum wage laws, getting around paying benefits. And so that's, you know, they use it up there for the same reason they use that misclassification here. So this story is like, so we've seen a bunch of different ways where Uber has tried to prevent unionizing amongst its workers here in the U.S. Obviously, you mentioned Prop 22, which they're now trying to bring copycats of that to other states here. Um, we also saw when we talked about Los Deliveristas Unidos, the attempt to form like a rump union with the machinists here, um, which would basically be a union paid for and sponsored by Uber to basically serve as a way to uh, provide cover for their attempts to protect misclassification. And so that failed in New York. But unfortunately, it seems as if a nationwide version of that has now succeeded in Canada, where so a couple weeks ago, Uber announced a deal with the UFCW is the five year deal to represent its 100,000 drivers in the country. And so UFCW will provide representation and dispute resolution services upon request from Uber drivers and delivery workers. Uber workers will be able to access UFCW reps via text or via Uber Canada Greenlight hubs. No. And the representation will come at no cost to Uber workers. Huge red flag. I couldn't <laughs> believe it the first time I read it. Like, mm -hmm. I, I know, like, it seems like a good deal. Oh, I don't have to pay for this representation. But paying for the representation is how you make sure that the representation represents you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> Right, because I mean, with with Uber paying the dues uh, for a, basically a shorthand of what's going on, mm -hmm. that means that Uber is controlling what the actual outcomes of any sorts of bargaining, uh, grievance procedure, or negotiations would even happen. The yeah. idea that this was pre-negotiated without the workers is an affront to the idea of organizing in the first place. Yeah, well, and I mean, this really. I mean, this reflects badly on the UFCW in general as well, that they would go ahead and operate as like a company union. Because mm -hmm. here's, here's the thing is like I, I, I see in the notes where you're like, this is one of those situations where the union is kind of acting as a third party. But I think it's even worse than that. I think there's still just two parties and the UFCW is just now representing Uber and acting as a fucking HR department. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I think either way you choose to interpret it, it's not good. Um, yeah. And one of the other things I think, because this is one of those things, we we never on this show, we never want to be fucking like WSWS, uh, the, the World Socialist website, uh, and also weirdly one of the most anti-union websites you can find. Yeah, um, and don't steal we, our initials and double them. That's weird. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um, where we just be like, do, do become like knee jerk against anything that a, a business union does because of their history of business unionism. Sure. But like, there are so many problems with this. Like, as you said, the fact that workers aren't paying dues for this, the fact that there was not a long struggle of workers to get the UFCW to represent them. Right. And the other one that I think is, is, is one of the biggest problems with this, which is as a part of the announcement, 
UFCW agreed to lot work with Uber to lobby the Canadian government to introduce legislation regarding like labor law around gig workers that quote introduces benefits but also protects worker flexibility. Ah, goddamn! Profoundly anti-worker. That's all I can yeah. say about that. Because. Like when we talked about the the fake union that Uber was trying to get going in New York, a big key part of that was to try and promote these portable benefits packages, which was basically a way to try and ward off uh, any sort of criticism of the misclassification of workers by saying, no, 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 it's fine that they're independent contractors. We'll agree to give them the world's shittiest benefits package like that won't give you anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when and, has anything portable ever been worth a damn? You got Game Boy Color, <laughs> iPod Classic, and a Hot Pocket. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Um, that is the exhaustive list. Um, and... But that's the thing is, and then when you hear, oh, we want to protect worker flexibility, I don't want to hear that out of a union ever because yeah. you, worker flexibility is code here for, again, Precarity. not classifying the workers correctly and mm -hmm. evading labor law. That's yep. all that means. Like, yeah, it doesn't mean absolutely. anything good for the worker. Well, and, and like you were saying, we don't want to just condemn the ufcw outright as a right. totally reactionary union there are plenty of locals who have gone out there and done some really great mm -hmm. work with the ufcw we covered the king supers workers i mean stop and shop workers are yep. going to be doing their ratificate their uh their vote on whether or not they're going to strike in like two days uh there are there are really some great ufcw locals mm -hmm. it's just when national I mean, at least in this case, Canada National comes out and says, uh, we've pre-negotiated a deal for you and trust us, it's good. Uber paid for it. Uh, that yeah. should be fucking terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And just for some background, like on the history of the organizing that has been going on with Uber workers, because obviously, similar to here, even when you have a workforce that is so ex uh, exploited, like gig workers and drivers because of that misclassification, it can actually be very difficult for workers to organize. So that's been a, you know, an area of difficulty in Canada as well as here. And UFCW had technically had some on the ground organizing efforts with a group of a few hundred drivers specifically in Toronto, I believe. And like, okay, that's cool. But like, there was also an organizing drive being done by the Canadian Union of Postal Workers that mm -hmm. has been going on for longer and has actually been a m more typical rank-and-file organizing drive that's led and run by the workers. And so those folks have now had the rug like completely pulled out from under them. Like They issued a statement uh, uh, in response to this deal saying... Gig Workers United, CUPW, represents drivers and couriers across multiple delivery apps in the greater Toronto area and beyond. We've earned this representation through organizing on the ground, worker by worker, by strengthening our community and responding to the demands of workers. Gig Workers United will continue on the path towards unionization and full and equal rights as a movement for gig workers that is led by workers. We will coordinate with the UFCW about how the agreement will be rolled out. To be clear, as gig workers, we define what our union looks like and how we make the decisions. We sit at the table with our employers and put forward our collective demands, and we choose the union that sits at that table with us. Yeah. I mean, that, that outlines it fairly well. It 
doesn't get into some of the nuances of of the fact that it's kind of a company union, but it's definitely alluding to to that. And the idea that they're they're like, okay, so we're not gonna just say we're not gonna just condemn the UFCW outright, but we need to get some clarity on this issue because honestly, this is fucked up. Just yeah. undermining this actual organizing drive for some I don't know what to describe it as uh, this platform of i don't know concessionary bargaining i don't it's know it's an hr I, department it's a fucking yeah, yeah it's an hr department i mean that's the thing is it's just like you would only be fooled by this if 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 you thought all a union campaign produced was like a ratification vote like a showing of interest in a ratification vote but that's not all a union campaign produces mm-hmm. it produces bonds of solidarity among the workers who meet and interact with each other and exchange stories and talk about their wages with each other critically and all manner of other things so yeah this is just i mean it's hard to overstate how many problems there are with this yeah yeah like i don't it's i mean the president of, of gig workers united uh which is that group that's organizing with the postal workers uh jennifer scott had said what this does is it enshrines Uber's current business model under the progressive guise of allowing its workers to unionize. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's exactly what this does. I, yep. I think she's com- exactly right. I, I mean, like, I can't count how many times we've uh, covered quote unquote progressive guises. Uh, yeah. I think that we have, I, I know that we had an entire section on it on our uh, 2021 year in review where we went over a bunch of quote unquote progressive companies like Starbucks uh doing this exact sort of like bullshit yeah well and they they always give you something that doesn't really fix the problem you know this is like the affordable care act of unions they they fucking you know we don't need the affordable care act we need health care for all <laughs> yeah so i mean obviously like you this is this is mostly coming out of a labor note story and ufcw did provide a response to labor notes but it was i got to say mostly a bunch of PR gibberish. It wasn't really a commitment to anything or really an explanation. And so like, I don't know, this whole thing just really seems like it sucks. I get like, we'll, we'll keep following it to, cause like it, they, they say that they want to do this to protect workers' rights. I guess we'll see what they do, but I mean, they're all signs point to this being a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, speaking of bullshit, how about some, <laughs> That's we talked right. about some sweatshop, fucking conditions in haiti yeah yeah so i don't know i think we've talked about haiti a couple of times on the Mm -hmm. show before um haiti the land america will not stop punishing for having the first revolution in the western hemisphere um right so this story specifically is about thousands of textile workers in haiti who have been on strike for the past couple of weeks and also making some pretty uh militant demonstrations which have been pretty rad to see the videos of in response to absolutely insanely low sub poverty wages that they're being paid right now. Um, and this all really stems from the U S's neo-colonial control of Haiti and refusal to allow it to have sovereignty for like 200 years. Uh, Yeah. And in the last decade or so refusal to even let it put together a governing body that can govern for a reasonable length of time. Like all we do is coup Haiti. Like we, we have a reminder every five years coup Haiti. Yeah. I mean like a hundred years ago the the U S literally sent the Marines in stole all the gold from their central bank and brought it back to the U S. So like, Mm -hmm. uh, it's been pretty much just that for the last, last century or so. Um, 
but these workers specifically, they started protesting on the 9th. Um, and in the first two days of the protest, they marched from their factory like complex to the residence of the prime minister. And that, you know, faced immediate violence from the local police, uh, including, you know, the use of tear gas and and just physical violence against the protesters, which result in 15 injuries. Um, and this is all emanating from basically these like free trade zones, which were built basically at gunpoint by the United States. Um, as most free trade deals are, uh, or all free trade deals. I pretty much, um, (laughs) But yeah, so these these are like basically manufacturing districts like in in this part they're called assembly zones. Okay. Uh where these workers who are on strike, they are paid less than $5 a day for a 9-hour shift making clothes for The Gap, Old Navy, H&M, JC Penney, and Zara who I mean, we've talked about those companies before and specifically their exploitation of textile workers because like we, when we talked about the workers who were on strike in uh, Karnataka in India, a lot of these same brands yep. were there refusing to pay a very small minimum wage increase. And yet here again in another overexploited country, you have these folks who again, so their demand is not for like $15 an hour, although sure, that's what they should be given. I, right. I know that, you know, cost of living is different, but whatever the equivalent is. Yeah, but uh, there's no reasonable cost of living adjustment that makes it so that the price that we pay for these goods <laughs> in right. the United States is double or more the amount of money the workers who are making them make in an entire nine-hour day of work. That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and what? so what they're demanding is a raise to... a day, which is still less than $2 an hour. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. To me, that sounds like an eminently reasonable demand. And because a big part of their, like their protest has been that not only is what they're getting paid, which is the equivalent of, I believe, $4 and 86 cents for, for, which is basic. It's just over 50 cents an hour. But that amount of money is like barely double the cost of getting to and from work and buying lunch. So like their actual take home tends to be like just over $2.250 for a day for a nine hour shift. And so like these folks have just had it. And so, you know, they've been protesting, they've been demonstrating, they've been trying to, you know, form solidarity with other folks and this is all coming out of again like just to get into some more of the history like recent history in haiti like in the 90s and in the early 2000s the u.s overthrew the democratically elected government of jean bertrand aristide multiple times like same guy mm-hmm. cooed by the same u.s government twice who had tried both times he was in office not to you know nationalize all the means of production which would have been rad and probably is what he should have done. But like all he was trying to do was basically say, Hey, what if we controlled our own minimum wage laws and we raised the minimum wage so that everyone wasn't starving. And, and so, because that would cut into say H and M and the gaps profit margins, the U S sent the Marines in to make sure that didn't happen uh, twice. <laughs> And so now you have like basically these free trade zones that are largely controlled by by acts passed by the United States 
the hope and hope two acts passed in 2006 and 2008, <laughs> fucking which hate a lar- sequel, right folks. <laughs> right. And, and they, those acts in the U S largely control trade relations with Haiti, which because of the U S dominance of, of like, uh, the economies of most of the countries in the Western hemisphere and globally gives the U S an inordinate amount of control over wage scales there. And to, to like, just put an emphasis on how the exploitation is built into the laws here in this framework that the U S set up as part of this trade deal, workers in these free trade zones are explicitly paid 10% less if their products are for export than if their products are for domestic consumption, which uh, why that is like the reverse of kind of what you would expect. I mean, you should be, yeah, you, th- isn't it usually like, like pay, tariffs are, are designed to make sure that, you know, trade exploitation isn't as, you know, like easily exploitable. Uh, whereas I guess in this situation, it's better to have they the I don't know that it's truly an incentive to do imperialism. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the U.S. doesn't even have one tenth of the world's population. How on earth do we have so fucking much of its money? <laughs> it's because of all of these like insane deals that we've set up in states that we've either taken over at gunpoint or just shown up and extracted all the resources from with our corporations and gained a foothold that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's after decades and decades of the U.S. sponsoring, like, the the Papa Doc and, and Baby Doc Duvalier dictatorships, mm-hmm. as well as taking advantage of every time Haiti's been hit by a natural disaster, be it an earthquake or a hurricane. The U.S. comes in and says, hey, you guys don't have any capital. Hey, weird how that happened. Um, like, <laughs> we have much capital. We can help you rebuild things. Right. And and in exchange, we will only make some very mild uh, changes to your laws and uh, trade codes. Right. Well, um, and uh, like all kinds of shady shit keeps happening, too. Like, who killed Jovenel Moise? Nobody yeah. fucking knows. And when nobody fucking knows, there's like a 50% chance it was just the CIA out on a walk. Well... And the fact that they're like, oh, it was a bunch of Colombian mercenaries. I'm like, oh, Mm. well, I mean, if you listen to our our Operation Gladio episode, you can find out who trained all those Colombian mercenaries. That's right. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, like, one of the the workers who was at this protest, uh, Simeline Lukelson, said, poor people can't do anything on this miserable salary. And the the workers in, in, like, the article that I was reading about this from uh, Left Voice said that they they call they refer to the wages of these textile plants pay as a tuberculosis salary because that's oh. the quality of life that you get when you're paid that. Jesus yeah. Christ. And the workers haven't seen a raise in 3 years. Mhm. And uh a, this report from the AFL-CIO's Solidarity Center which as we know is it, you know go back and listen to the AFL CIA episode generally not exa- not exactly a progressive labor right. association but they're they're saying that it, for an actual living wage these workers would have to be paid about $17.50 per day which is three and a half times what they're being paid and even more than what they're demanding yeah they're yeah technically demanding under a living wage and that is still unacceptable mm-hmm. yeah and so and in response to that of course like what do we get do we get like oh hey you know you're right we should change this no they get you know met with tear gas and batons and and violence and 
just today, uh, we're recording this on the 22nd. I was, I was looking stuff up right before the show and found out, Oh, Hey, look, the Haitian government has such that it is, has agreed to raise the minimum wage in response to the protest. Oh, well that's, that's good. Let me, let me just click on that. Let me look into this. And it's like minimum wage raised by 37%. And I'm like, well, okay. And then I'm like, not, not remembering how much they're paid. I'm like 37%. That seems like a big number. And then go back and look at it. It's like, oh, that's only a raise to like 690 a day. Oh, damn. You missed a digit guys. It should be (laughs) 1690 (laughs) or just 69. (laughs) <laughs> nice $69 a day for Haiti that's what I want to see yeah I mean <laughs> why not that's like that's like minimum wage here in the US for a nine a nine hour day yeah. Um, but yeah so the the government is attempting to raise their minimum wage from you know 486 a day to like 690 a day when these workers are demanding $15 a day and a living wage is seventeen fifty a day. So, yeah, imperialism uh, on display, folks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We'll we'll keep following this and see how it develops. I hope the protests continue because, like, this is some like that's not enough money. Like, that's not enough of a raise. No. That's that's some bullshit. Like, I don't know. This seems what? fucked. I I hope the textile workers are able to you know unite with some of the other folks that work in these export districts right. and, and, you know, do some more damage to the, uh, the point of production. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool to see organized labor spring up in a place like Haiti that's dominated by state violence and also gang violence. And also the barrier between those isn't necessarily clear all the time. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, to, to see that people who are really fed up and people who really do just want to like live their fucking lives are like, okay, well, we have to be organized. We have to be militant in the face of all this is both inspiring and distressing that we it was ever allowed to get this bad for those yeah. Uh, workers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where just, just to, to cap this off, like, because we were talking before the show about the, the racist ways that Haiti is portrayed here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I, I hope like stories like these help illustrate the sort of stuff they don't teach us here about, you know, why there's so much poverty mm-hmm. in the global south. Absolutely. It's like it's it's because the U.S. is stealing all of their labor. Like, well, there's that there's that old political cartoon where it's just like South America and Africa. You know, the global a lot of the global south is just dug out. And then there's all this gold piled onto the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Europe. And it's like it's basic. That's true it's it's a simplification but it's absolutely true that's how it works yeah absolutely. Uh, they're 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 over exploited jerry <laughs> <laughs> that's right so our next story this week uh we're moving we're back into the u.s we've got a uh, new union announcement at the flagship location of the alamo draft house the chain of of, of up like higher end movie places where, you know, you can order food right to your seat. Oh, um, oh, so, so the, the people right- who work at this place are dealing with like tech yuppies. Yes. All fucking day who are like mad. There's not enough cheese on their pretzel when it's being delivered to their chair. The, the people who think South by Southwest is the height of culture. Oh, God. <laughs> pay these workers a hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
these workers, and this is specifically, yeah, at the flagship chain location in Austin, they announced last Monday, the 14th, that they'd secured majority support to unionize with the IWW. Um, and they have requested voluntary recognition from, um, you know, Alamo. And they also, at the same time that they re- they requested voluntary recognition, they also put together a list of the issues that they're really focusing on and the sort of stuff they would want to address in their first contract. And it's, you know, none of these are surprises. This is this is work in America. It's, you know, increased wages and benefits, paid sick leave, an unfortunate thing that has to be thrown into every one of these uh, negotiations over the last two years, mm-hmm. transparency regarding COVID-19 practices and policies, and a resolution to longstanding building maintenance requests. Oh, wow. That's oh, great. one so- that, like, that means that there's either, like like leaky roofs causing poor food conditions or or just like all sorts of poorly maintained facilities causing danger not only to the workers but also to the people who are there to you know partake in the business and like that's i mean it's a little vague i mean it it could be any number of things like it could be major structural failure or it could just be like the mop sinks on floors one and three don't work so everyone has to go to the mop (laughs) sink on floor two which is like funny but also a serious problem for people who are trying to get their jobs done in a timely manner because they have a lot of responsibilities yeah yeah and so the workers tried taking their request to management like for months being like, Hey, uh, we need stuff to get fixed. And also why'd you fuck up the COVID policies? Mm-hmm. And they were just told whenever they tried to bring stuff as a group or even just as a few people, Oh, well, you know, if you just bring these up individually in staff meetings, we'll take care of these right away. And, uh, shocker that did not happen. Uh, wow. And no. so <laughs> the workers realized like, all right, this isn't going to get done unless we make it get done. Um, and so we got a quote here from the, the announcement from Jay, who has been a runner at Alamo for the last six years, who said, for years, my fellow staff members and I have felt that corporate put our needs at very low priority, despite our presence and hard work being very high priority to the success of Alamo Drafthouse. Our concerns regarding things like livable wages, better corporate communication, and safe and effective working conditions have, more often than not, been downplayed or outright dismissed by those with the power to make those changes. At this point, it seems that direct action is the best way to get ourselves heard and ensure positive change going forward for the Alamo Drafthouse and the people who make it what it is. You'd love to hear from a worker. Yeah. I mean, look, it's... So this is... The thing with this announcement is that, like, A, it's pretty cool to actually see, like... Because I feel like the only thing we've mostly been seeing with IWW lately has been their excellent work with um, Burgerville. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool to see this, you know, spread out to Alamo. Also... The fact that like this is at their flagship location is pretty great. One of the things that they pointed out as a specific problem with regards to COVID was that basically at the beginning of the pandemic, Alamo tried to say, okay, no, we're taking this seriously. We're going to do COVID protocols. We're going to have buffer seats. We're going to have, okay, you have somebody who comes in, then you have two seats. You leave those empty. You put in the next person with the idea that we will, we will do social distancing in our theaters by spacing people out. That'll protect our patrons. That'll protect our staff and whether or not that would work. Like they were at least making a show of, of caring about it. Then after a few months, they kind of just gave that up and they never brought it back despite workers asking about it, especially during the Omicron surge. 
Um, you know, when we have seen cases spike to levels not seen before in the pandemic, and yet they still, like all these other companies, just use the CDC guidelines as a shield and said, hey, no, we're just, we're following the science. We don't need to close anything. We don't need to put buffer seats back in. Yeah. The uh, the death panel's description is the Beyblade letter rip <laughs> policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... What we've got right now is, you know, the workers have come out, they've made this announcement, they've got a majority, they're asking for voluntary recognition, and I'm sure that Alamo, as a, you know, one of those hip companies that cares about its workers, <laughs> is definitely going to... No, I'm kidding. We haven't heard anything back from Alamo yet, and I'm sure they're going to fight this. They've already got Littler Mendelssohn on retainer. <laughs> yeah. Well... I mean, Allegedly. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. We I don't, think- we don't, I'm just well, making yeah, stuff up, but it's probably involved. true. It could be true. <laughs> I, I do think that uh, getting the IWW to be the uh, union that is organized, that the workers are organizing with, is a particularly cool threat because I I love a good union with uh, a big like kind of red uh, banner being like, <laughs> hey, yeah. uh, we're gonna fight this and we're serious about it because like. Again, we were talking about the UFCW earlier. If they were like, oh, you know, they're unionizing with UFCW, they're like, okay, well, at least we have a business union to, to deal with or whatever. But no, the IWW is a rank-and-file union uh, and uh, should should provide a good amount of power for the workers. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still early stages. We've mostly just got the announcement right now. We'll see how Alamo responds. Um, but we'll definitely be keeping posted on this because, like, Movie theaters have definitely been one of the, I would say, more overtly impacted, like, sorts of businesses Mm -hmm. by COVID because, like, necessarily it's sitting inside in a room with a bunch of other people (laughs) for for several hours. More than an hour, yeah. Yeah. So it's the sort of thing that even folks who aren't, who may not be taking COVID super seriously may think twice about going to one of those. And so we've seen the impacts on the movie industry. Um yeah. And so as we've seen with so many industries, when that shit happens, where's the the, you know, the impact fall first? The employees. And yeah. so I, I have to imagine that there's a lot of chains, not just Alamo Draft House, who've been impacted in similar ways. So uh I think if we see a success here with the first Alamo store, there's always chances to turn this into another, you know, Starbucks Workers United campaign that sweeps across the country. Yeah. And in our next story, uh, we are going to be covering the kind of story that you expect from us, a really hard hitting sports <laughs> news story, which That's we have right. very good and knowledgeable assessments on. No, no, we actually do kind of we, we went over this one fairly thoroughly. Uh, we're actually going to be going and well, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the minor leagues and, and the ways in which some of the working conditions are. But uh, right now, there is a lockout on minor league baseball, which is... Well, it's the lockouts in the majors, but one of the problems... I should have rewritten the the headline. But anyway, so like one of the issues that we're going to get into with this story is just the fact that the minor league players and the major league players are not on the same collective bargaining agreement. And yeah. the minor league players, I made, don't I have made my it. own point I, by, by, with my joke at the beginning, and then then mixing up a, a detail right away. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. I I put these uh, sports labor stories in the show to keep my my co-hosts on their toes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I get I get all of my sports information from basically uh, labor disruptions in the United States. When they happen, I start paying attention. But like, I reading this was extremely enlightening for me because like. 
if you if you've ever thought that like oh the minor league guys must make pretty decent money too they fucking don't <laughs> no they don't even make as much money as a teenager working at burger king in many situations yeah so like i know we've talked about like the minors and them being exploited before in the past but with the context of the major league lockout that's going on right now and the struggle between the major the, the major league players and the uh, owners it's really shown a light on like how badly these workers need collective bargaining and really the fact that the major league players association should be doing a hell of a lot more to reach out to them because mm-hmm. this is coming out of an article in the athletic where they're highlighting the impact to these players of the incredibly low wages that they get because so for there's about i believe six thousand players in the total minor leagues because minor league baseball has like baseball has the the by far the most extensive minor league farm system Mm -hmm. of of all of the major sports and from april until september these workers are paid but not very much but from september like from the end of September to the beginning of April in the off season, they're not paid at all like whatsoever. And so these workers who are already paid poverty wages can't, you know, spend the whole off season just like working out and taking care of their bodies and rehabbing and, and getting ready for the next season. They have to go out and get other work. Like for instance, and, and this all comes back to like the way that player development works in baseball. So like, uh, this was something I, w- I, I was I, I always forget that like for people who are listening to the show who may not necessarily follow sports as much like when you have players who are trying to get into like Major League Baseball you have the very very top few draft picks who may go direct out of high school or after a year of college and right into AAA and right into the majors real real quick that's extremely rare the vast majority of these players have to spend four to six years at least in the minor leagues before they're going to get to the majors. And while they're there, they're paid between eight and $14,000 a year for the, for like, you know, the period when the season is open from April to September and then are paid nothing the rest of the year. And so there's this, this story is, is full of all sorts of, of different examples of how workers have struggled with this where like one guy, uh, Kieran Lovegrove, who is a recently retired player who was a former third round pick, which is, you know, relatively high, who described working for Uber and Lyft in the off season, taking seasonal work at UPS to make ends meet, where his schedule would have to be working from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m., going home to eat and get like four hours of sleep, and then getting up at 8 a.m. so that he can do like, his off season workout to keep in shape, to keep his, his, his skills up to par and like having to do that each and every day. Because one of the other things that I think is so key to this is it's not just that, you know, these players have to work multiple jobs because, which is really bad on itself, but it's like, because of the intermittent nature of this, it's not exactly like the second job they're able to work is something stable. It's always something like seasonal work or gig work, Mm -hmm. And oftentimes something that could, you know, be dangerous and could, you know, very much interfere with the potential ability to continue their their playing career. But it's something that they have to balance that risk there. Like there was a quote from Luke Rennie, who's a, ma- a minor league free agent, who said, 
It's not even remotely optimal, physically, mentally, or emotionally. It doesn't make any sense why we can't be paid year-round for a year-round job. We're making pennies. What is $6,000 more when we make 8000 during the year? It's frustrating, it's a systemic issue, and I don't understand how it's gone on this long. Yeah, I mean, and, it's truly deranged, because like, if you're working multiple jobs in the off-season, you also don't have time to train at all. And if you're a minor league player and you want to move up, because there's like different brackets of minor league, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. There's low A, high A, double A, triple A. Yeah. There's there's a bunch of different levels. So if you want to move up and even have a remote chance of getting into the majors, you have to spend quite a bit of your off season like staying in shape and perfecting mm-hmm. your game and practicing. I I don't know what the fundamentals of baseball are, but I know you have to practice them or it wouldn't be a compelling sport. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like the pitchers will have to watch video of hitters to figure out you know mm-hmm. where, where you know what their skill set is, where they should be pitching to where they should be pitching away from and and batters will do the opposite they want to watch pitchers and see how they can adapt to their game and so that is like actually a critical part of training for mm-hmm. these guys and that's something they get zero compensation for whatsoever and the way all the way this is all set up legally <laughs> is because MLB classifies minor leaguers as part-time seasonal interns. Oh, geez. (laughs) Which is enabled by a 2018 law that was specifically passed to protect Major League Baseball from labor lawsuits called the Save America's Pastime Act. Save America's Pastime from who? The players? (laughs) Yeah, basically, yeah. (laughs) And, like, because of that classification as part-time seasonal interns, Players are paid between $290 and $700 a week during the season. And that's it. And, like, only this year did they even consent to giving players a stipend for housing during the season. Like, this is when you would have, you know, players going from city to city on the bus. They're not, most of the time, they're not really, they're not taking flights anywhere. Mm -hmm. And they were... Like if they're on the road, sometimes they would be given a hotel voucher. But then when they're back home, like they, there were stories in this of 10 players having to squeeze into a two bedroom apartment just so that they could all actually afford to live and eat <laughs> during the season because their wages are so low. And the other thing that were, that some of these players pointed out in this article was that even the new housing stipend from the minor league like baseball teams, that is on the assumption that the player is a single, like unmarried, like player that doesn't have any family because it's all based on like, okay, will you have, have a stipend for you to have a roommate? This is the thing about the idea of like of doing things based on the cost of living. Like there's a lot of assumptions that go along with that. I, I and I mean, it's just the business's version of what what is um, a competitive wage and and right. just kind of the the culmination in that sort of rhetoric to say we will decide what you do and don't deserve. Yeah. And like this can be even worse sometimes for the players that the leagues import from Latin America where you have all of these players who they get a tiny signing bonus like maybe a couple of thousand dollars to come to the U S sign with a team, play in the minors, but to get into the U S they get a visa to work 
specifically as minor leaguers, which most of the time means that it is illegal for them to get another job, even in the offseason when the minor leagues aren't playing. So you have these folks who are already not being paid enough to survive, who then, because they're coming, they have a, like a work visa from Colombia or the Dominican Republic or you know, Anywhere, a bunch of the yeah. Venezuela, a bunch of the different countries that send a lot of baseball players to the U S like the, they have to get this like wink and a nod agreement from the teams that they're playing for that. They're not going to report them for getting a part-time job just to be able to support themselves and be able to stay in the country, which it's is insane. A, yeah. I mean, the, it's a, it's more of a threat. The wink and the nod is actually, it, it culminates in what it what becomes a threat of saying and if you were to say uh provide some lo- sort of labor distress or some sort of collective action we might not turn a blind eye to that great kindness that we've done to you exactly yeah so i mean in addition to all of this because to point just to 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 sort of frame this i know baseball probably doesn't seem like it's like it seems like it's probably a bit on the downslope as far as popularity, which is probably sure. true. All the, but the thing is, the leagues have never made more money. They make billions of dollars in profit every year off of their TV contracts, off of ad contracts, off of just the money they take in from the games. And so that's what like the lockout is about right now between the players, the major league players who do have a collective agreement and the owners is there's all, but we talked about this story briefly before there's a whole bunch of issues relating to how the game has been changing rules wise. That's not the fundamentals of the, of the argument. It's what percentage of the revenue goes to the owners who do nothing. And what percentage of the money goes to the players who do almost everything. And that's fundamentally what that's about. And one of the things that I think that really hurts the players, the major league players, where, by the way, the minimum salary for a season, which is guaranteed even in the case of injury, is $570,000, which is one of those things where you say that to somebody, and I've had this conversation so many times, and you get into the, the immediate reaction of, man, that's ridiculous. I can't believe they get paid so much to play a children's game. And it's like, look, I get that. Like... I know that seems insane when you compare it to your job, but a, those people have to do an absolutely insane amount of work. And B it's because when you look at the amount of money, the owners are making off these guys labor that $500,000 doesn't look so big anymore. Right. Well, and uh, I mean, baseball doesn't suffer from people aging out of competition quite as fast as the other big American sports like football and basketball, but it's still a phenomenon. Like you can't be a baseball player for your entire life. You have to retire much earlier than most people. And so, you know, your money has to go a lot further. You have to spend your, you have rather, you have to save a lot while you're making it so that you have something for when you can no longer play. And that even just relies on the assumption that everyone makes it. Right, yeah. Right. Like, the, there's people who, who will, whose bodies will be destroyed while working for these horrible wages, and they might not make it to a, a, a league where they're paid enough that is consistent with the amount of money that they're bringing into this industry. Yeah, the, the majority of minor league players are not going to make it to the majors. And that means they're not going to get 
the healthcare that comes with a major league contract. They're not going to see that money. And they're going to go through, you know, years and years of working tirelessly day and night for this, you know, this, this dream of, of playing in the majors while being paid $8,000 for, for like six months work, paid nothing in the off season when they have to do hours and hours of work every day, just to maintain much less improve their, their skills and keep their, their like bodies in shape. Mm -hmm. And then just the last part of this that I wanted to throw on here, that is, I didn't know this part before this story. So when, the players have to come to spring training, which is, you know, basically preseason for, for the majors, which happens in March every year and is about to probably be disrupted by the lockout. It, they don't even get those poverty wages. They have to show up to spring training for free. Like, wow. And, and technically it's one of those things where yes, technically if you are a player, it is optional for you to come to spring training. <laughs> optional in that they can't kill you. <laughs> right. Like, but but you will almost certainly not make a roster if you don't come, which means it's not really optional. Right. Well, and even if you don't factor in all of the other hours, it's like if you got a job that just paid $15 an hour, you would make the $8,000 that some of these guys are getting paid for their whole season in 13 weeks. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is like insane, and I, it's it's another one of those situations where it's a little bit of a different form, like we talk about with like GameStop or working for video game developers or in the tech industry or whatever, where it's like you want to be here, right? This is your passion. This is the thing you yep. like. Uh, okay, here's eight thousand dollars for months and months of work. Now yeah. try and to get an apartment in a metro area where everything is fifteen hundred dollars for a one bedroom. And so, like, the MLB has been sued in court over this before, mm -hmm. although now they have the extra legal protection from the Save America's Pastime Act. Ugh. But when pressured on, hey, how come you think it's cool to not pay your workers for an entire month's work of work, worth of work in, in March for spring training? And their answer to that was that the reason that the players don't get paid at spring training is that they are trainees who are actually receiving 2200 a week in experience oh for just God. being allowed to be there. Yeah, we all 2, love being paid in experience, week? folks. 22, what, then why aren't you paying them 2200 a week for the season? <laughs> well, right? And, what? And then, yeah, <laughs> the, the idea that, that the spring the expertise that is required to do the job is specifically trained for on the job and is then not paid is mm -hmm. absurd. I I think it's ridiculous that I'm required to to do research on a company before I before I put it in an application, let alone do a month worth of work for for nothing. Yeah, well, and it's it's also just an incredible bastardization of what training is. Because mm -hmm. in a business context like this, training would be like introducing you to the job. And I know that these coaches are not standing around going like, okay, here's baseball. There are three bases. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the folks in this article for The Athletic actually ran the numbers. And they said that if you just paid the workers a $2,000 stipend for spring training, which is like, again, not enough money. Like, because that's like for a whole month. Like... It's it's comp it's comparable to their incredibly awful sub poverty wages and would be certainly better than the zero they're paying them, but it's still nowhere near enough. But 
paying every worker that much for spring training would cost each team $450,000 a year, which is less than the minimum salary for one player in the majors. And that would, for each team, cover... I mean, again, not nearly enough. It should be a hell of a lot more than that. But, like, that might be enough that they could, you know, pay rent and pay for food and probably not much else more. Um, And yet, they still have managed to hide behind their monopoly protections and the U.S. Congress because they they, they do these emotional appeals of, oh, well, how will baseball ever survive if we have to pay the minor league players? Where's the money going to come from? Definitely not the huge profits that we make. (laughs) Yeah, no, please don't look (laughs) at these. Like... And the, uh, there's, there's always this, yeah, they, they, they throw out this shit. It's, it's basically the same argument you hear from the NCAA about why they shouldn't have to pay college players, which is like even worse exploitation Mm -hmm. somehow because it's basically slavery, but we have minor leagues in the other sports leagues that pay their players. I mean, not incredible amounts, but a livable amount Mm -hmm. like the AHL, the American Hockey League, which is the minor league here in the U- like the highest level minor league for hockey here in the US, the minimum salary is $51,000. And the reason the minimum salary in the AHL is $51,000 is because the AHL players have union protection. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually able to make those demands. And in the G League, which is the development league for the NBA, the minimum salary is lower. It's it's only $37,000, and it should be higher than that. But it's a hell of a lot more than $8,000, and that's to play half as many games? Right. So this contention that, like, baseball could not survive if it actually paid players enough to fucking live is a complete lie. Like, every other league can do it, and the, but the reason that they do it is because they were forced to by workers who would organize. And so, like, I wanted to bring this story up in the context of the ongoing lockout that's happening in the major leagues just to point out that, look, just from, a, like, a moral and general solidaristic perspective, like, the major league players should want to organize the lower, like, league players mm-hmm. because it's like... Nobody should have to go through that bullshit to get there. But also, just from the perspective of trying to understand like how you don't want to be in labor competition with everybody else, it would be in the interest of the major league players to organize the minor league players so they could all organize and bargain at once instead of being pitted against each other. Absolutely. Hey. Well, and there's a, there's also a huge uh, uh, racialized element to this as well, which is For like sure. this is a league that uh, imports more players from Latin America, overexploited countries in Latin America than any other sports league in the United States. And uh, I'm sure there's an, an angle there as well by which they're they're justifying not as openly, but justifying not playing these and not paying these players very much money at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess uh, to go to our final story here for today, uh, we're going to be covering another coffee workers union. Uh, in the Great Lakes coffee workers uh, have gone on strike for something that is a little bit different than most of the strikes that we cover. This one is actually for union recognition itself. They're striking before they get their recognition, folks. Hell yeah. Yeah, this rules. Like, I 
I'll be honest, I don't remember the last recognition strike that we covered. I have to imagine we have covered some, but... I actually think this might be the first. Yeah, this is, like, really rare in the U.S., uh, like... But it's fucking awesome. Like so, so these are workers at the uh, Midtown Detroit location of Great Lakes Coffee. They they made an announcement last Wednesday, the sixteenth, that they had they intended to unionize and they were going on strike until the company recognized it. And yet again, we see here one of the primary reasons behind this is the company's shitty handling of COVID. Like they pointed out that their location has actually been closed for the past several weeks because. Great Lakes Coffee's like refusal to adopt any sort of real measures to protect their workers during COVID resulted in nine of the location's 24 employees getting COVID during the, the peak of the Omicron surge in January. And so that was basically the last straw for these workers who are, who are trying to unionize with Unite Here, Local 24. And at the same time that they announced their, their strike, they also announced their demands, what they're going to be fighting for in their first contract, should they get it, which is pushing for clear COVID protocols to protect workers, a starting wage of 15 an hour, affordable insurance, paid time off, including sick days and parental leave, and an anti-harassment and discrimination policy. Which is incredibly important in these precarious jobs. Absolutely. I mean, uh, har- harassment and discrimination exists in these workplaces rampantly. I mean, I don't know about the individual shop level, but the idea that it's a demand makes me think that it, this is no exception to the things that I, I've personally experienced and also heard from many other workers. I mean, when I was working at Starbucks in particular, one of the the, the biggest things I saw there that, that really worried me was that my, my coworkers who were women would get like routinely, maybe not overtly harassed, but you know, it, there's this whole gradient of, of inappropriate behavior and harassment. And every time they would report something along that gradient to uh, Starbucks, they would just like fill out a bunch of pieces of paper and then like receive basically a Starbucks approved pat on the head. You'll feel better soon. And that was <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, honestly worse than that in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. So these workers have uh, secured support of 20 of the 24 workers at the location, a clear supermajority, which is obviously what gave them the confidence to do this mm-hmm. recognition strike. And uh, they've also explicitly noted that they were partially inspired by the ongoing wave of unionizing at Starbucks by Starbucks Workers United and that they are reaching out to local baristas in the in the Detroit area to try and, you know, set up some solidarity between those those groups of workers there. Uh, there was a, a quote here from from Beck Caster, who's a barista with uh, Great Lakes Coffee, explaining like what led them to organize. Uh, they said, quote, a lack of communication and disrespect from management has been a consistent problem with the company since before my time. No worker should have to choose between affording their rent or protecting their health. We will be on strike until we have our union recognized and a fair contract. I love that. I oh, love yeah. that. I, I I think that like it does they since the the store is shut down it feels like there was this additional pressure on the workers to to like increase the action because not only are they being like their their issue is with covid but then to be reduced to zero hours because of the poor conditions yeah i mean there's not really much else to do except 
take that time where you're not supposed to be at work and turn it into a formal strike and be like, okay, well, if this is the way it's going to go, then we're going to decide the way that it's going to go. And I I think that that's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is like, actually, like, according to the articles that I was reading about, this is the first instance of a recognition strike in Detroit for any industry in decades And like, so the workers have been picketing both the Midtown location, but also Woodward Corner Market in Royal Oak, which also houses some GLC locations. And on Wednesday, when they made their announcement, they held a rally with more than 100 supporters who showed out to uh, show solidarity with the strikers, including Cindy Estrada, the vice president of the UAW, who was there to say, quote, we will not be crossing picket lines and we love coffee as organizers, but we sure as hell won't be getting any Great Lakes until you get a contract and you get recognition. Hell yeah. I mean, uh, is it any wonder that coffee workers are, are organizing across this country? I mean, they're waking up. Their eyes are open. <laughs> They've had their coffee, <laughs> you know? Well, and one, one of the... <laughs> One of the conditions that is outlined by uh, one of the baristas, uh, Max Capasso, was that, uh, I'll just do the quote here, Uh, I would have to be there at 6.45 a.m. and leave at 4.30 p.m. I would work by myself all day doing everything. So I'm setting up, I'm cleaning everything, I'm making everyone drinks, all for $11 an hour. My car is held together by duct tape because I cannot ro- afford repairs. Damn, I've been there. Yeah, that that fucking sucks. So, I mean, this is a story that honestly I feel like there's some really inspiring stuff from it, but I'm also a little worried because of the fact that Great Lakes is a relatively small company. Mm-hmm. And because this location has already been closed for a couple of weeks for COVID issues... Like I, th- the level of organization that these folks have been able to put together, and the launching of a recognition strike with with completely solid supermajority support, that fucking rules. <laughs> uh, and uh, more places should do that if you can secure the support, which is I know is a huge if. Mm-hmm. The, but the thing that I worry about here, and this is no criticism whatsoever of the workers, I think they've handled this perfectly, um, is that with the small size of Great Lakes. And the, the relatively few might just wrap it up and be like, oh, we lost this one, folks. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about is that their response to the drive may be like, oh, so we can't reopen unless we approve a union contract. Okay, we just won't reopen. Yeah. And that's, again, like that's not a critique at all of these workers. And I'm not saying they should have done some more mild form of organizing because that, that just doesn't work. Like this is the right way to handle this mm-hmm. stuff. Absolutely. It's just the difficulties that you encounter with these sorts of like, you know, petite bourgeois ideologically, like super opposed to unions. Cause it's one of those things where they'll say it's a business decision. They'll be like, well, you know, it just wasn't profitable. And 99% of the time it's not true. They could have reopened the location. They could, even with a union that has a great contract, they would still be able to get the surplus value that they love to live on as capitalists. It just wouldn't quite be that level of exploitation they've come to adopt. And it also might give the workers a little sense that they should be treated as people. Whoa. uh, And I mean, I want to see this win because I want to see a recognition strike win. Uh, Hell yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that there is also the incentive that the, that the, bourgeois class is going to want to not see this be a win so yeah 
Uh, yeah, we don't, yeah. don't know. We're, I'm very excited to, to follow up on that one later as well. But let's do what we always do at the end of the episode and go into the meme review. Hell yeah. This first one is in reference to Starbucks workers who were pushing back against the union-busting uh, meetings that were going on where they would basically, like, uh, combat any of the the stupid talking points that came to the table and this is just i, I love this meme because it's this guy at uh holding this older guy up with a knife uh at a car in the first uh is there john do you know if there's a name for this particular i don't know the name for this but i know the original text is like it looks like this old guy's getting held up and he says call an ambulance and then he pulls a gun out and he goes but not for me <laughs> yeah is the first the first um panel of this one is a captive audience meeting but not for me with but the not- <laughs> guy with the gun holding a star or with a, with the starbucks workers united logo over top of him which i just i love this one <laughs> it's a great logo people have been posting on twitter of just photos of the logo and they're like this logo is fucking badass <laughs> <laughs> well and it's been really nice to see this recent spate where when you actually have a union that's organized on a rank and file basis where the individual workers are the ones running the campaign. They've been talking to each other. They've been like finding out what everybody's struggles are there that you can actually turn these union busting attempts against the company. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen with this, with Starbucks where they turn these captive audience meetings ultimately into a, a laundry list of reasons why they should have a union. And when we saw the, the Amazon workers confronting the union busters that Amazon brought in, in Staten Island and, and saying that basically these captive audience meetings are bullshit. You come in here and you just lie to all the workers and, it's just it's great shit, and it's really good to to see people pushing back against that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the the next meme that we've got is a classic King of the Hill with the um, Hank <laughs> and uh, name Dale. Hey Dale. <laughs> I mean Bill's Bill's also technically there in the back. Oh, yeah, I actually see Boomhauer as well, yeah, just as hair. All there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the classic. Uh, are y'all with the cult meme? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first. The first panel is, uh, is this uh, the mandatory anti-union meeting? The second <laughs> panel is the, the cult on the bus. Is, no, we're more like a family. Come with us. We have pizza. Then obviously putting it in park. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like, this is definitely one of the better formats. And I think this is from that like. Oh, yeah. We covered um, one of these memes last week. Yeah, there was the 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 possum with the the Appalachian the Workers Coalition or something like that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. That's watermark that's on here. But so we got this next one. You've got the a kind of a subversion of the meme format of the two buttons, and you got the guy who normally is wiping sweat off his brow, but it's a different one in this case, where the two buttons are tell employees they can't afford to pay more, or brag about record profits. Because you'd think you can't do both of those things right no way wrong and so <laughs> this one has the guy instead hitting both buttons at once and it's just this big goofy face with a thumbs up labeled companies 
I, I loved this one because it's actually really like well formatted. Clearly, his right hand is spread out with his thumb and his pinky pushing both button one of each buttons, and then his left hand is doing the thumbs up at the same time. the The actual continuity in this meme is so fantastic, <laughs> especially for one where they had to totally redo the sweating part of this meme just to do the <laughs> art correctly. I just want to hand it to the artist who did this for fucking na- just knocking it out of the park yeah great art direction great continuity work i mean honestly take notes netflix original series <laughs> please that's right <laughs> also i just on this topic like you'd think those two things can't be done at once but when you have this little thing called the ideological state apparatus, oh. uh, which includes such organizations as Facebook that will come on there and put a label when I share memes on there about inflation being caused by corporate profits and say, well, actually, the fact checkers at the American Enterprise Institute say that's not exactly true. <laughs> <laughs> then you can, you know distort things for people. Mm-hmm. So our friends over at the other side of the ideological state apparatus have decided <laughs> that we're going to say that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, these facts are inconvenient. Uh, please reconsider them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this next meme is just a, this is just a thing my job does. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's a bunch of diet Coke and um, what's the gold diet Coke can? Is that like diet it's Coke? It's caffeine free diet Coke. Wow, the the least desirable soda of all time, caffeine-free Diet Coke. Uh, And there's just a piece of paper on it that says, free expired pop to all employees. Smiley face. Uh, (laughs) The smiley face is the best part. It's what makes this funny. (laughs) I mean, at at my job, uh, it's it's not pop. It's, um, It's like bags of chips and like little pastries and stuff. Uh, and it says, there's a little sign. I'll take a photo of it sometime. It says, please do not take more than 10. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought but that was so funny. <laughs> there's like so many things. This First off, as somebody who consumes an uh, unnecessary amount of soda, like how do you have soda that is so old that is expired? Because like, Diet Coke, caffeine-free Diet Coke are like the fakest liquids of all time. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in there to go bad. So they last forever. Like the only thing that happens is they go flat. So like, I don't know where you're finding, like, are these like the like Coca-Cola, like well, holiday packs so with like the In the, the background, the, you might not know what those them. boxes in the background are, but I'm pretty sure what those are. Those are bag in a boxes, which are the yeah. soda, the soda syrups. Mm-hmm. So this could be at a a like a sandwich shop. It could be at a movie theater. Could be at like mm. one of the one of those sorts of places. I imagined it was like a uh like a what what is it called like a Home Goods or like a a, a Macy's or something where it's oh. like, yeah we might well, have a few fridges with some soda in them, but we mostly sell like kitchenware or some shit. But yeah, just the whole like. Please smile, employees, as we we throw you these expired crumbs of soda. Be be so happy for our generous donation. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and speaking of uh, being so happy for generous donations, uh, <laughs> the last one is kind of a p- poetic little meme. It almost reminds me of the memes you saw people make it on Facebook in like 2015, <laughs> um, where there's uh, there's the uh, what's his name Lakitu. 
mm-hmm. the cloud yeah. uh, with the fish in Lakitu with the coin dangling, and he's got the, the capitalist pig face on him with the top hat. And then Mario's chasing after the coin, and it says, when they pay us as little as they can and charge us as much as they can, it's no wonder the system is collapsing. Which is like... <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? <laughs> you can't just have a system that, that pays as little as possible for, for someone's labor and then tries to sell it back to them as a commodity for the most amount of money. That's not sustainable. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is the 21st century version of that old cartoon from like the Pullman strike era where it's the worker who's in between the like two like stones one is is low wages and one is high rent Mm -hmm. and you've just got the like Mm -hmm. railroad baron like turning the screws on the thing and so like lakitu here is just filling that same role here you know (laughs) constantly constantly keeping mario jumping with the the promise that he's gonna get that coin but mario unless you work with everyone else you're never gonna get that coin (laughs) (laughs) and uh so the lesson of this meme is always kill those lakitus they're a pain in the ass (laughs) (laughs) that's right and on that note we'll have to see you next time uh if you are interested in additional content we've got some evergreen episodes we just did a basically a long story on the trucker strike in canada uh which is not uh, you know don't it's not it's not a workers movement folks we'll 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 tell you more about Mm -hmm. there's even the preview the preview's got tons of information if you're just trying to pick up some of the basics but anyway you know if you want the whole thing it's five dollars a month to support us and if you can't afford that jump in the discord and let us know we'd be happy to give you the episodes if you can help us out in other ways write us a review somewhere uh whether it be on the facebook on the on you know the communist manifesto that you hand to your fellow worker uh right. you know just just uh, do that follow john on twitter at facebook villain follow uh i was gonna say follow dan but follow the pod <laughs> well it's dan and and mostly and and also the pod but uh, at work stoppage pod on twitter listen to beep beep lettuce and red game table and as always this one's out this one goes out to the ufcw <laughs> labor peace right. is not in our fucking interest that's right Solidarity, Solidarity forever, folks. Solidarity, everybody. Don't do HR for big corporations. And the magazine, the blue screen, the big hand moving past the last thing and turn for you.
Everything you feel 